So, uh, to our first guest, Shirley, do you do you want to do you want to get yourself? Up? <laughs> now, uh, while, while Shirley is, is getting herself comfortable, I will say, as you already know, of course, she shot to international fame in 1975 with the publication of Superwoman, which was followed up with Lace um, in 1982. Many other books since then, many other very important jobs. She's an OBE. We'll be talking about that too. Um, and I'm going to be asking her how things have changed in the 30 years since Lace was published, um, since she scandalised and empowered a generation. He's so good. I love him. Since she scandalised and empowered a generation. And I do also want to find out tonight, finally, which one of you bitches is my mother. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> test that this thing works. Can you hear me at the back? Okay. I'm very glad to be here tonight because there was a time I thought I wouldn't make it. And Addison Lee got that taxi, collected me. And I was sitting in the back and about half an hour later, I heard the driver say, oh dear. And I looked up and we were back at my house again. <laughs> <coughs> and <coughs> and um, he then explained that Addison Lee programmed their computers, giving you the directions, from headquarters. So he got very agitated. And I said, look, I'm perfectly happy. Just drive carefully. I want to get there. So he drove off, and he got more and more agitated. And perhaps one of the reasons was I was practicing my read in the back seat. <laughs> <coughs> Violently, he stuck his cock in her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> All the way. <laughs> and when we got here, I, on the way I have said, look, I don't mind anything as long as you don't talk, because I'm talking. And, <laughs> and when we got here, I said, excuse me, but how long have you been driving for Addison Lee? And he said, not long. So I said, how long? And he said, a week. And I said, what did you do before that, thinking that perhaps he drove tractors? And he said, I was a banker. <laughs> so I felt better about it. <laughs> and now, as sadomasochism seems to be the flavor of the year, I thought I would read you one of my SM scenes from Lace, written 30 years ago. In New York, 35-year-old Judy Jordan is, uh, runs her own PR company, and now for the first time, she's, taken, she's fallen in love with Griffin Lowe, who's a fascinating media tycoon and well-known womanizer. He and Judy saw each other three times a week. At first, they were discreet, but increasingly they became reckless. His wife must surely know, Judy reasoned, and so did Griffin. She won't say anything, he said. She never does, he told Judy, and she winced. She hated to think of herself as merely one of Griffin's affairs. There was a long silence. That was a very shitty thing to say, Judy said, and she was only half joking. She wanted to hurt him the way those three words had just hurt and humiliated her. She never does. They'd had lunch at her apartment, smoked trout and half a bottle of white wine at the bedside. Then Griffin showered, dressed, and was now about to leave. Very shitty, Judy repeated. 
turning to him with a wicked gleam in her blue eyes. So I'm going to punish you so that you never hurt or humiliate me again. Griffin went along with it. He could have kicked himself for saying those three words. She led him by the hand back to the rumpled bed and shoved him down on it. With a forced laugh, because he was late for his appointment, Griffin put a, <laughs> <laughs> put a lazy arm... <laughs> Griffin put a lazy arm up to pull her down against his chest, but she caught his wrist and said, I'm going to tie you to the bed, and then I'm going to have my way with you. <laughs> I'm going to punish you so that you'll never, never be shitty thoughtless with me again. She bit his forefinger hard enough to make Griffin jump with pain and surprise. Then she pulled off her maroon dressing gown, sash and swiftly tied his right arm to the headboard. He tried to protest in a playful voice, going along with the game. He recognised the real pain behind her teasing tone of voice, and he also recognised that he wasn't going to make his next appointment. <laughs> <laughs> As Judy reached for his other wrist and wrapped a red silk scarf around it, he said in a resigned voice, aren't you going to undress me first? I'll take off your shoes, Judy offered, yanking off his handmade Italian loafers. Then she tied his ankles to the bed with her be his beige silk stocks so that he was spread-eagled. Oh, no, Griffin said in a high falsetto. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Not Gestapo-style correction. Not the whip. Not torture. Not the studded leather bed with the gloves and the buckles and the brass handles. <laughs> And, sorry about this, <laughs> I'm getting excited. <laughs> and the vicious stiletto teal heels and the swastika armband. Groaning between laughs, he didn't mind playing along for a bit. Worse, said Judy, disappearing into the kitchen. She reappeared naked in the doorway with a pair of sheaths in her hand. As she headed for the bed, still with that wicked glint in her eye, Griffin nervously said, okay, Judy, I'm sorry. Now let's quit fooling around. I'm ri this ridiculous horseway has gone far enough and I'm late as it is. Oh, but I haven't started. So I'm certainly not going to stop, Judy said. And before Griffin realised what she was doing, she'd slashed through the jacket of his handmade suit. <laughs> Judy! <laughs> he tried to jerk himself upright, but found to his surprise that he really couldn't move. She started to snip through the silk shirt imported the previous month from German Street. Judy, what are you playing at? You gave me this shirt only yesterday, remember? A mistake, said Judy calmly. <laughs> <laughs> Carefully cutting into his left trouser leg and slicing roughly up towards his groin. You really did hurt my feelings then, you know. So I'm afraid I'll have to upset your life the way you're upsetting mine. Griffin started to simmer. He wouldn't have minded if it was a Saturday, but he had a busy afternoon ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and after all, they're just... He said, you did come, didn't you? <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think I'll make sure that you don't talk. She put the shears down, picked up her tights, stuffed them into his mouth and gagged him with his own tan silk tie. <laughs> then she carefully slashed up the other trouser leg and yanked away the drapery of grey flannel. For one second, Griffin worried as the shears were flourished in the air 
and then slashed towards his box of shorts. He started to give muffled yells for mercy. Whatever she was playing at, it seemed the correct way to respond. <laughs> I'm going to punish you so you never do it again, Judy said softly. I'm going to make you sorry. I'm going to make you suffer. There's a new law against what I'd really like to do to you at this minute. As she leaned towards his cock, to his embarrassment, Griffin felt himself stiffen. She curled her tongue and flicked it at his flesh with butterfly strokes. Griffin groaned with pleasure, whereupon Judy stopped. <laughs> she, she scrambled off the bed and again headed for the kitchen, reappearing with a bottle of olive oil. She said in a conversational voice, you really should be more considerate, Griffin. Kneeling on the bed beside him, she tipped the whole bottle over him and the oil ran over his body and onto the sheets. Judy moved the bottom of the bed and started to massage his left foot carefully, starting with the big toe and kneading hard under the instep. And then going all the way up his leg with hard, oily strokes, he thought, she's going to suck me off. That's what this, <laughs> that's what this is leading up to. <laughs> but she didn't. She stopped short of that point and started to rub his right foot, then expertly ma massaged his entire body until her hands were kneading the big... Can't read the next bit. <laughs> until her hands were reading... I really had. I had the big muscles <laughs> on either side of Griffin's neck. Okay. Occasionally, she brushed the tip of her nipples across his chest as her thumbs pushed rhythmically towards his ears. Now you should be limp and acquiescent, she said thoughtfully. She crouched over Griffin's oil-slick body and with the tip of her tongue just licked his stiff cock with little cat-licking-the-cream sort of licks, after which she knelt astride him and carefully stroked her clitoris with his cock, taking no notice whatsoever of Griffin. In fact, treating him as a sexual object. <laughs> so bringing herself to orgasm. I must say, the taxi swerved at this point. <laughs> eagled on the bed and she was sitting on top of him so there wasn't much he could do about it. A muffled groan escaped his lips. By now he was slightly purple in the face and highly excited as Judy very carefully knelt astride his hips and put just the tip of his cock inside her then quickly lifted her body so that it almost slipped out. After a few moments of this teasing she suddenly pushed it right in and ground her body against him, his. Then just as suddenly, she jumped off him. There was a muffled yell of fury from Griffin. <laughs> Judy said, now I'm going to get myself a highball. She padded away, <coughs> leaving Griffin jerking at his bonds. She returned with a large scotch on the rocks. She took a swig and swilled it round her tongue like mouthwash. Then she stretched up beside Griffin, took two ice cubes in her mouth and bent down again. He gave a muffled yelp because the stinging sensation was totally different from the usual inside somebody's mouth feeling. In <laughs> instead of being warm and soft, 
it felt freezing and dangerously lumpy. <laughs> Judy sucked away until the ice in her mouth had melted and Griffin had lost his erection. <laughs> then she curled her forefinger inside him and wriggled around a bit, feeling for his prostate. When she found it, she pushed against it until Gri Griffin quickly jerked to a climax. He was furious. <laughs> <laughs> Judy stood up and poured the rest of the highball over his head. The bed was now covered in a revolting mixture of olive oil and melting ice. Then she nipped out to the icebox saying, this always looks so humorous on film. <laughs> she returned with a lemon meringue pie which she carefully ground in Griffin's face. <laughs> she pulled the tin foil base away, stood up, and surveyed the scene. My God, what a mess, she said disapprovingly. Then she turned on her heel and headed for the shower. Ten minutes later, she reappeared, immaculately dressed in a buttercup sleeveless short linen tunic with matching pumps. I've got an appointment, Griffin, so I have to go now, <laughs> she said in a polite voice. Then she picked the shears off the floor and placed them on the bed about a foot from Griffin's head. He tried to yell his indignation at her. Mum, num, num. <laughs> but only muffled sounds came through the gag in his mouth as he struggled furiously. Judy looked down. You were in the Boy Scouts, Griffin. You work it out. <laughs> she walked out of the apartment. Griffin couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that she'd really left him. He couldn't believe that he wasn't able to free himself. He jerked and struggled with his ridiculous silicon bindings, gradually getting very cold on the unpleasant, sticky, damp bed which stank of scotch. <laughs> Eventually, he found that by curling his right hand carefully around, he was able to pick up the knot of the dressing gown sash. It took him about half an hour, and then, with one bound, he was free. <laughs> he telephoned his driver to bring a fresh set of clothes. Griffin was livid. But he was also impressed. He, Griffin Lowe, the big dealer, the lover and lever, who kept his women neatly organized in a private emotional filing system that never overlapped with office hours or impinged on his domestic comfort, he had been faced with a situation that his power, charm and savoir-faire had been unable to resolve. There had been real fury behind what Judy did, and she hadn't weakened. She had demonstrated the physical power she had over Griffin. She understood his body so well that she had kept him at point of orgasm for an hour and a half, teasing him almost beyond endurance until his nerves were raw. He had been humbled, if not humiliated. <laughs> if my mother could see me now. <laughs> what can I tell you? <laughs> uh. <coughs> I, I actually, my glasses did actually steam up. <laughs> we've, we've all been there. Um, um, I don't really know where to start. <laughs> St don't stop, no, start, no, stop. No. So um, you, you wrote this book 30 years ago, um, and, that, and that scene is kind of timeless. I mean, it could be the Marquis, Marquis de Sade. I mean, it's, it, it, there's, there's, there's something about men and women in opposition with olive oil um, that is strangely timeless. Um, and um, I was wondering what you thought had changed since then, culturally, 
since 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 she wrote the book, now that we've got Fifty Shades of Grey, which is inferior. Well, obviously. Um, I didn't really much enjoy reading Fifty Shades of Grey. In fact, I only read it because it was part of my job. Um, nice work if you can get it, and I'm delighted that she's made all these zillions. I really am. That's I a always, feminist yeah, thing to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, but um, I just thought probably I wrote what I knew about and she wrote what she wanted to know about. <laughs> there was a sort of... There was a sort of... <laughs> to the carp, Charlene! <laughs> about the book. Um, it was slightly 18th century. Oh, Sir Rudolph, what are you doing to me? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get our Austin expert yeah. to talk about sex in the 19th century a little bit. No, but you're right. It was, it yeah. was, it was there was one interesting bit that was about two pages long that I really was interested in. Um, but in the same way I would be interested in the Queen's bathroom, because I've never been in that, and I'd be quite <laughs> interested in that. It was a description of a torture chamber, if you wanted the red room. A, a do-it-yourself one, yes. If you wanted to know where to place everything, nope. then it was a perfect description. Yeah. So like changing rooms, but kind of but for, I for, think, for, for s and I think for, you know, really getting worked up, give me the catalogue of agent provateur any day. Yeah. Um, so you said you wrote about what you what you knew about. I mean, and yeah. in the afterword to the book, you're very thrillingly frank because you're like, well, in fact, <laughs> lace was my life, and I was one of these girls at the finishing school in Switzerland, and these are the things that happened. And I found yeah. it. I mean, I actually found the afterword extraordinary. I mean, here you were saying, well, this person's Prince Abdullah, this person's this friend. I mean, tell yeah, tell us about that. There's one. I'm afraid I didn't write about. I mean, also I didn't include the Duchess of Bedford. Uh, but she died last week, so now I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Spell about the Duchess. Um, I'm afraid it did seem rather stuffed with aristocracy, but that was mainly because the people I worked with made good. So, but you, you were sent off to a, a finishing school in Switzerland yeah, when, when you when were... Yeah, when I was 15. 15. And you knew nobody there when you, when, when you got there. You just had to kind of arrive. I, I knew one girl who had okay. been at school with me in England, yes. Okay. And I got to know... Um, uh, you know, quite a lot of other girls there. Because I think one of the In things... Including Jill Tweedy, I might say. She once said, yeah, I, I, I tell everyone I was at school with you. I said, Jill, surely you don't admit to having been at finishing school. She said, no, I just say school. <laughs> <laughs> Borstal, S&M Academy. Um, so, so, I mean, what... That seems to me like, re reading it, I mean, it really did seem like a, another world. It seemed, it it, seemed it, like some, a world that just surely can't exist anymore. Uh, well, parts of it were in 1979, you see, yeah. finishing school. And then I was writing it in 79-80. Sorry, we're in 1949. Mm. So, so there was a take on sexual life of schoolgirls at that time. And then we whipped forward to when the... Um, the kind of first when wave the, of feminism. The, the, the friends were reunited, and then we went part back through their sex lives again. And I'm not sure... I, I actually thought that I wrote bits between the sex scenes. But I, <laughs> I think they were cut out by the publisher in New York. <laughs> I, I, I really do. I only read this through for the first time, before, just before it was republished. 
And had so you really not read it in all that time? I hadn't read it at all. And I, well, I had a friend, Mary Quant, who had re- written her autobiography when she was and 25. And she's in the book. She's in the oh, book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she, like the rest of yeah. them. Yeah. And um, I, Mary said she hadn't read her book. And I thought this was the height of sophistication, not to have read your own autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> Note to but self. But once I've written a book, and everybody out there who's done it will understand it. Once you've gone through the draft four times, once you've gone it through it three times with the editor, you're absolutely sick to death of it. And the last thing you want to do is waste your time reading it when it's in print. I so, so I agree. Read it the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so of of the characters who are in there, there's there's Maxine and there's there's Kate and there's Judy and there's Pagan yeah. and then of course there's there's Lily, who's the mysterious daughter um, of one of them, who has of course the very famous line, "Which one of you bitches?" And Abdullah. Yes, Prince yes. Abdullah. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. talking about the women though. I'm, oh, I'm interested yeah. in um yeah. in their friendship because yeah. I think that that's one of the for me. It's it, I mean, it's a novel about all kinds of things um, <laughs> involving goldfishes going places they shouldn't. But but it's about a novel about friendship. You know, and that's the thing that endures all the way through. And that's when I'm most stressed for the girls is when their friendship is challenged, yeah. not when their romantic yeah. relationship is challenged. So I think that's you've hit upon probably one of the most interesting things in my life because I was born in 1932, and I remember before the war, and I remember during the war, and I remember after the war. And women were very competitive before the Second World War because they had nothing. You know, they only had their recipes or their... You mean with one another, competitive with one yeah, another? Yeah, competitive yes. with one another. And if you just got divorced, it, not that you really could then and still say, you know, you were banned from Ascot. And I don't, <laughs> don't, you know how awful that is, Claire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> you know they let lesbians in now. It's terrible. <laughs> Times have really slipped. So, so, so I think then... There was, when I was on Fleet Street, I was a designer till I was 30, and then I was a design consultant to the Daily Mail, and I gradually edged into being woman's e- well, home editor for them. But at that time, as my mother said, I was learning to be a journalist, and um, everybody at the Daily Mail was very patient with me, I have to say. But everybody in Fleet Street who was a home editor really hadn't had much practice at it. And we were all home editors because we got children and homes. But at that time, you had to pretend you hadn't got any children. Your tire, the, your, your car, puncture, that sort of thing. How many kids but you never you said your child had measles. Um, they might have wondered at the amount of punctures your car had. <laughs> but you, know, you, never, you never owned up to it. Now, what happened was underground... All those home editors, little group of us, supported each other. So if a child had measles, then the rest of us would rush it and we'd, we'd spare copy or tell them what was going on. And I really... Um, that certainly was not so for the rest of Fleet Street as I observed it, because it was very, very competitive there. Um, but since then, I think... And, and, and this has got nothing to do with the feminist movement. I think, I think just naturally, as women have become more confident and as they've got more money... Um, and more things to do, they become more self-possessed and less anxious and less uh, just lacking in all self-confidence. If you think your your life depends on a recipe book, you know. I mean, when when I was young, if your best friend asked for a recipe, then you would carefully leave out the most important ingredient when you <laughs> gave it to him. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> Shelley's lemon meringue pie was never that great. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
Well, that doesn't happen nowadays because, of course, we don't cook. We assemble. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, I'm, life is too short to stuff a mushroom. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I had to get that in there. Um, so I, 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 you were saying about it having nothing to do with feminism, and I wonder, if you were writing, if you were writing the book now, would the the four women, would the friendship still be the thing that was as essential and would it still be a solid by the end, do you think? Uh, well, I'm, I'm lucky. I just have marvellous women friends. But for all I know, everybody else does as well. <laughs> um, and uh, I think... I, I can tell you just what's happened in interwomen relationships. Now we're getting into that like, cultural language. But um, I think... Also, what happened about sex is before the pill, the pill was in about 1960, but, but actually nobody used it till much later. So um, it didn't really... What then happened in about the 70s was that boys, started with boys, pressured girls to have sex with them because otherwise they would be unpopular. And furthermore, the boys that they didn't let have sex with them would tell everybody else that they had had sex with everybody. So um, that, I feel, pressured a lot of girls, certainly, and almost undoubtedly a lot of women. And I think that, you know, they've left that behind. But I can remember when I was writing the women's pages on The Observer, and I got five assistants and a secretary, and at one point I heard the fashion assistant say, so I said no to him. I said, Gillian, what did you say? <laughs> she said, I said no. And I said, well, how do you say no to a man? And she said, you just say no. And slowly, the whole of the office crept towards her, <laughs> saying, but how do you say no? <laughs> and this is, I mean, it's not a joke. I really, no. I think now we can all say no. Yes, yes, we can <laughs> say <you>. no. <laughs> all right. I, I know, it's fantastic. Let's take some questions from the audience. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, obviously, Sylvia is going to explode if she lets me. Go, go ahead. Hello, darling. Hi. Hello. That's not my question. Sylvia, a question. Is, is it Faye, Faye Weldon apparently said, I'm not sure about this, but Faye Weldon apparently said, she, okay, fine, she's saying she did. Faye Weldon apparently it's said that she lost her virginity. It's one way to lose your time. best friend. Yeah. I think it's a sort of short-term policy. <laughs> <laughs> That's you answered. Uh, um, uh, other questions for, for Shirley. Uh, Sam, did you have a question? Because I know that, no, 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 you didn't. No, no. There. Is that a lady taking a picture or asking a question? I can't quite, I can't. She was taking a picture. Okay, fine. Um, I just wanted to ask you one, one, one more question, which was to do with your life then and your life now. Because when Lace happened, you were one of the first people between the book and the film to get a million dollar advance. Yeah. And this yeah. was in 1978. And at that time, it would take the secretary 200 years to earn that amount. So it was a big sum then. Um, and so how, how did that change your life then? Well, it changed my life considerably because I was broke at the time. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I finished, when I finished, um, I, I was held over to Simon & Schuster in New York to, to work on the edit. And I then phoned my mother from my hotel, and she was, she's Canadian and lives in Canada. And I said, Mum, I've just spent $22 on a black back brush. 
she said, $22 on a back brush? Yes. And she said, and why not? <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a great place to leave it. Thank you, Shirley Corrine. Thank you.